Chapter 18 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 18 Huts. Huts and Snow Houses. In making a depot, it is usual to build a house. Often the men must pass weeks in inactivity, and they had better spend their time in making their quarters comfortable than in idleness. Whatever huts are used by the natives are sure, if made with extra care, to be good enough for European travelers. Log Huts In building log huts, four poles are planted in the ground, to correspond to the four corners. Against these, logs are piled one above another, as in the drawing below. They are so deeply notched where their ends are crossed that the adjacent sides are firmly dovetailed. When the walls are entirely completed, the door and windows are chopped out. The spaces between the logs must be caulked with moss, etc., or the log cabin will be little better than a log cage. It requires a great many logs to make a hut, for supposing the walls to be eight feet high, and the trees to average eight inches in diameter, twelve trees would be required to build up one side, or forty-eight for all four walls. Other timber would also be wanted for the roof. Underground huts are used in all quarters of the globe. The experience of our troops when encamped before Sebastopol during an inclement season told strongly in their favor. Their timely adoption was the salvation of the British Army. They are essentially nothing else than holes in the ground roofed over. The shape and size of the hole corresponds to that of the roof it may be possible to procure for it. Its depth is no greater than requisite for sitting or standing. If the roof has a pitch of two feet in the middle, the depth of the hole need not exceed four and one-half feet. In the Crimea, the holes were rectangular and were roofed like huts. Where there is a steep hillside, an underground hut is easily contrived, because branches laid over its top along the surface of the ground have sufficient pitch to throw off the rain. Of course, the earth must be removed at the place intended for the doorway. Reed Huts The reed huts of the Efej Arabs and other inhabitants of the Chaldean marshes are shaped like wagon roofs and are constructed of semicircular ribs of reeds planted in the ground, one behind the other, at equal distances apart each rib being a faggot of reeds of two feet in diameter. For strength they are bound round every yard with twisted bands of reeds. When this framework has been erected, it is covered with two or three sheets of fine reed matting, which forms a dwelling impervious to rain. Some of the chief's huts are as much as forty feet long and twelve high. The other huts are considerably smaller. Many of these reed dwellings are contained in compounds enclosed by lofty reed fences, the reeds being planted upright and simply strung together by a thread 
run through them as they stand side by side. Snow Houses Few travelers have habitually made snow houses, except Sir J. Franklin's party and that of Dr. Ray. Great praises are bestowed on their comfort by all travelers, but skill and practice are required in building them. The mode of erection of these dome-shaped buildings is as follows. It is to be understood that compact underlying snow is necessary for the floor of the hut, and that the looser-textured upper layer of snow is used to build the house. First, select and mark out the circular plot on which the hut is to be raised. Then, cut out of that plot, with knives, deep slices of snow, six inches wide, three feet long, and of a depth equal to that of the layer of loose snow, say one or two feet. These slices are to be of a curved shape, so as to form a circular ring when placed on their edges, and of a suitable radius for the first row of snow bricks. Other slices are cut on the same principle for the succeeding rows, but when the domed roof has to be made, the snow bricks must be cut with the necessary double curvature. A conical plug fills up the center of the dome. Loose snow is next heaped over the house to fill up crevices. Lastly, a doorway is cut out with knives, also a window, which is glazed with a sheet of the purest ice on hand. For inside accommodation there should be a pillar or two of snow to support the lamps. Snow walls with tenting for their roofs. Sir L. McClintock says, We traveled each day until dusk, and then were occupied for a couple of hours in building our snow hut. The four walls were run up until five and one-half feet high, inclining inwards as much as possible. Over these our tent was laid to form a roof. We could not afford the time necessary to construct a dome of snow. Our equipment consisted of a very small brown holland tent, Macintosh floor cloth and felt robes. Besides this, each man had a bag of double blanketing and a pair of fur boots to sleep in. We wore moccasins over the pieces of blanketing in which our feet were wrapped up, and, with the exception of a change of this footgear, carried no spare clothes. When we halted for the night, Thompson and I usually sawed out the blocks of compact snow and carried them to Peterson, who acted as the master mason in building the hut. The hour and a half or two hours usually employed in erecting the edifice was the most disagreeable part of the day's labor, for in addition to being already well tired and desiring repose, we became thoroughly chilled while standing about. The dogs were then fed, then the sledge unpacked, and everything carried into it. The door was now blocked up with snow, the cooking lamp lighted, footgear changed, diary writing up, watches wound, sleeping bags wriggled into, pipes lighted, and the merits of the various dogs discussed until supper was ready. The supper swallowed, the upper robe or coverlet pulled over, and then to sleep. Next morning came breakfast, a struggle to get into frozen moccasins, after which the sledges were packed and another day's march commenced. 
In these little huts we usually slept warm enough, although latterly, when our blankets and clothes became loaded with ice, we felt the cold severely. When our low doorway was carefully blocked up with snow, and the cooking lamp alight, the temperature quickly rose, so that the walls became glazed and our bedding thawed. But the cooking over, or the doorway partially opened, it as quickly fell again, so that it was impossible to sleep or even to hold one's pannikin of tea without putting mitts on, so intense was the cold. Sir L. McClintock is here speaking of a temperature of minus 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Materials for Building Huts The materials whence the walls and roofs of huts may be constructed are very numerous. There is hardly any place which does not furnish one or other of them. Those principally in use are as follows. Wattle and daub, to be executed neatly, required well-shaped and flexible sticks. But a hut may be constructed much like the sketch of the way of drying clothes. It is made by planting in the ground a number of bare sticks four feet long and one foot apart, bending their tops together, lashing them fast with string or strips of bark, and wattling them judiciously here and there by means of other boughs laid horizontally. Then, by heaping leaves, and especially broad pieces of bark, if you can get them, over all, and banking up the earth on either side pretty high, an excellent kennel is made. If daubed over with mud, clay, or cattle dung, the hut becomes more secure against the weather. To proceed a step further, as many poles may be planted in the ground as sticks have been employed in making the roof, and then the roof may be lifted bodily in the air and lashed to the top of the poles, each stick to its corresponding pole. This sort of structure is very common among savages. For methods of digging holes in which to plant the hut poles, see the chapter on wells. The holes made in the way I have there explained are far better than those dug with spades for they disturb no more of the hardened ground than is necessary for the insertion of the palisades. To jam a pole tightly in its place, wedges of wood should be driven in at its side and earth rammed down between the wedges. Palisades are excellent as walls or as enclosures. They are erected of vast lengths by savages wholly destitute of tools, both for the purposes of fortification and also for completing lines of pitfalls across wide valleys. The pitfalls occupy gaps left in the palisading. The savages burn down the trees in the following manner. A party of men go to the forest and light small fires around the roots of the trees they propose to fell. The fires are prevented from flaming upwards by the judicious application of leaves, etc., when the fire has eaten a little way into the tree, the man who watches it scrapes the fire aside and knocks away the charred wood, exposing a fresh surface for fire to act upon, and then replaces the burning embers. A single man may easily attend to a dozen trees, and indeed to many more if the night be calm. Some hours elapse before the trees actually fall. 
their tops and branches are burnt off as they lie on the ground the poles being thus procured for the palisading they are carried to the required place where holes are dug for the reception on the principle described in wells to which i have just alluded straw or reed walls of the following kind are very effective and they have the advantage of requiring a minimum of string or substitute for string in their manufacture the straw reeds or herbage of almost any description is simply nipped between two pairs of long sticks which are respectively tied together at their ends and at a sufficient number of intermediate places the whole is neatly squared and trimmed a few of these would give good help in finishing the roof or walls of a house they can be made movable so as to suit the wind shade and aspect even the hut door can be made on this principle in reedy countries where there are no sticks thin faggots of reeds are used in their place bark bark is universally used in australia for roofs of huts and temporary buildings the colonists learnt the use of it from the natives and some trees at least in every forest country might very probably be found as well fitted for that purpose as those in australia the bark may be easily removed only when the sap is well up in the tree but a skilful person will manage to procure bark at all seasons of the year except in the coldest winter months and even then he will light on some tree from the sunny side of which he can strip broad pieces the process of bark stripping is simply to cut two rings right around the tree usually from six to nine feet apart and one vertical slit to join them starting from the slit and chipping away step by step on either side the whole cylinder of bark is removed the larger the tree the better for if the tree is less than eighteen inches or so in diameter the bark is apt to break when flattened out when stripped for huts it is laid on the ground for some days to dry being flattened out on its face and a few stones or logs put on it the ordinary bark of gum trees is about half an inch to three-eighths thick so that a large sheet is very heavy most exploring expeditions are accompanied by a black whose dexterity in stripping bark for a wet night is invaluable as if the bark will come off well he can procure enough of it in an hour's time to make a shelter for a large party mats can be woven with ease when there is abundance of string or some equivalent for it in the following manner a b are two pegs driven into the ground and standing about a foot out of it a stake a b is lashed across them a row of pegs are driven into the ground parallel to a b and about six inches apart two sets of strings are then tied to a b one set are fastened by their loose ends into clefts in the pegs and the other set are fastened to the stick c d if there be ten strings in all then one three five seven nine are tied to c d and two four six eight ten to a b 
by alternately raising and depressing CD, and by pushing in a handful of rushes between the two sets of strings after each of its movements, and finally by patting them home with a flat stick, this rough sort of weaving is carried on very successfully. Mats are also plaited in breadths, and the breadths are stitched together side by side. Or a thicker kind of mat may be made by taking a wisp of straw and working it in the same way in which straw beehives are constructed. Straw is worked more easily after being damped and beaten with a mallet. Melee Hitch I know no better name for the wonderfully simple way, shown in the figure, of attaching together wisps of straw, rods, lays, reeds, planks, poles, or anything of the kind, into a secure and flexible mat. The sails used in the Far East are made this way, and the movable decks of vessels are made of bamboos, joined together with a similar, but rather more complicated, stitch. I may remark that soldiers might be trained to a great deal of hutting practice in a very inexpensive way, if they were drilled at putting together huts whose roofs and walls were made of planks lashed together by this simple hitch, and whose supports were short scaffolding poles planted in deep holes dug as explained in the chapter on wells, with the hand and a small stick. The poles, planks, and cords might be used over and over again for an indefinite time. Further, bedsteads could be made in a similar way, by short cross planks lashed together, and resting on a framework of horizontal poles lashed to uprights planted in the ground. The soldier's bedding would not be injured by being used on these bedsteads as much as if it were laid on the bare ground kinds of designs and experiments in hutting could be practiced without expense in this simple way tarpaulins are very suitable for roofs those made after the method used by sailors are much superior to others in softness and durability the plan is as follows as soon as the canvas has been sewn together it is thoroughly wetted with sea water and while still wet it is smeared over on one of its sides with tar and grease boiled together, about two parts tar and one of grease. After being hung up till it is dry, it is turned, and the other side, being a second time well wetted, is at once painted over with the tar and grease, just as the first side had been before. The sailors say that the tar dries in as the water dries out, a saying which, I confess I cannot understand. Other materials. I will merely mention these by name, for they require no explanation. They are fascines or faggots, bricks, sun-dried or baked in the oven, turf, stones, and bags or mats filled with sand or shingle. Whitewash is lime and water. Lime is made by burning limestone, chalk, shells or coral in a simple furnace roofs thatching after the framework of the roof has been made the thatcher begins at the bottom and ties a row of bundles of straw side by side on to the framework then he begins a second row 
allowing the ends of the bundles composing it to overlap the heads of those in the first row. Wood shingles are tile-shaped slices of wood, easily cut from fir trees. They are used for roofing, on the same principle as tiles or slates. Floors Concrete for floors is made of eight parts large pebbles, four parts river sand, and one part lime. To make lime, see whitewash. Cow dung and ashes make a hard, dry, and clean floor, such as is used for a threshing floor. Ox blood and fine clay kneaded together are excellent. Both these latter compositions are in use in all hot, dry countries. Windows. A window, or rather a hole in the wall, may be rudely shuttered by a stick run through loops made out of wisps of grass. In hot weather, the windows of the hut may be loosely stuffed with grass, which, when watered, makes the hut cooler. Glass to cut. Glass cannot be cut with any certainty without a diamond but it may be shaped and reduced to any size by gradually chipping, or rather biting, away at its edges with a key, if the slit between the wards of the key be just large enough to admit the pane of glass easily. Substitutes for glass. These are waxed or oiled paper or cloth, bladder, fish membranes, talc, and horn. End of chapter 18